This month is a continuation of last month's ghost stories. Late November ghost stories here on People's Guide to the Cthulhu Mythos. I am your host, D.B. Spitzer. This episode is brought to you by The Shrink Next Door on Apple TV, a 2021 drama inspired by the true story of Marty and the therapist who turned his life around, then took it over. When he first meets Dr. Ike, Marty just wants to get better at boundaries. Over 30 years, he'll learn all about them and what happens when they get crossed. Check out The Shrink Next Door, only on Apple TV. Check us out on Facebook.com and check the show notes for the sponsors who help keep us on air and find out how you can help. And also check out Taza Chocolates Holiday Stuff. They've got all kinds of stuff. Hey, guess what? Here's the show. Here we go. Read by Dale Grothman. It was a tale of sheer horror that old Asa Gregg poured into the dictaphone. In the Dark by Ronell Kayser The watchman's flashlight painted a white circle on the frosted glass, black-lettered door. Gregg Chemical Company, Manufacturers. Asa Gregg, President. Private. The watchman's hand closed on the knob, rattling the door in its frame. Queer, but tonight the sound had seemed to come from in there. But it couldn't be. He knew that Mr. Gregg and Miss Carruthers carried the only keys to the office, so any intruder would be forced to smash the lock. Maybe the sound came from the storage room. The watchman clumped along the rubber-matted corridor, flung his weight against the door. It opened hard, being of ponderous metal fitted into a cork casing. The room was an airtight, fireproof vault, really. His shoes gritted on the concrete floor as he prowled among the big porcelain vats. The flashlight bore through the bluish haze to the concrete walls. Acid fumes escaped under the vat lids, made the haze, and seared the man's throat. He hurried out, coughing and wiping his eyes. It was damn funny. Every night he heard the same peculiar noise somewhere in this wing of the building. Like a body groaning and turning in a restless sleep, it was. It scared him. He didn't mention the mystery to anyone, though. He was an old man, and he didn't want Mr. Gregg to think he was getting too old for the job. He should think I was crazy if I told him about it, he mumbled. Inside the office, Asa Gregg heard the muttered words plainly. He sat very still in a big leather-cushioned chair, hardly breathing until the scrape of the watchman's feet had thinned away down the hall. There was no light in the room to betray him, only the cherry-colored tip of his cigar, which couldn't be visible through the frosted glass door. Anyway, it'd be an hour before the watchman's rounds brought him past the office again. Asa Gregg had an hour, if he could screw up his nerves to use it. He took the frayed end of the cigar from his mouth. His hand, which had wasted to mere skin and bone these past few months, groped through the darkness, slid open the polished coolness of the dictaphone hood, and snapped the switch. Machinery faintly whirred. His fingers found the tube, lifted it. 
Miss Carruthers, he snapped. Then he hesitated. Surely he could trust Mary Carruthers. He'd never wondered about her before. She'd been his secretary for a dozen years. Lately, since he couldn't look after affairs himself as he used to, she had practically run the business. She was forty, sensible, unbeautiful, and tight-lipped. Hell, he had to trust her. His voice plunged into the darkness. What I have to say now is intended for Mrs. Gregg's ears only. She will take the first boat home, of course. Meet that boat and bring her to the office. Since my wife knows nothing about a dictaphone, it will be necessary for you to set this recording running. As soon as you have done so, leave her alone in the room. Make sure she is not interrupted for a half hour. That's all. He waited a decent interval. The invisible needle peeled its thread into the revolving wax cylinder. Jeanette, muttered Asa Gregg and hesitated again. This wasn't going to be easy to say. He decided to begin matter-of-factly. As you probably know, my will and the insurance policies are in the vault at the First National. I believe you will find all my papers in excellent order. If any questions arise, consult Miss Carruthers. What I have to say to you now is purely personal. I feel, my dear, that I owe you an explanation. That is, God, it was harder than he had expected. Jeanette, he started afresh, you remember three years ago when I was in the hospital? You were in Palm Beach at the time. I wired that there had been an accident here at the plant. That wasn't strictly so. The fact is, I'd gotten mixed up with a girl. He paused, shivering. In the darkness, a picture of Dot swam before him. The oval face, framed with gleaming swirls of lemon-tinted hair, had pouting scarlet lips and eyes whose allure was intensified by a violet makeup. The full-length picture of her included a streamlined, full-blossomed, and yet delectably lithe body. A costly, enticing, Broadway chorus orchid. As a matter of fact, that is where he'd found her. I won't make any excuses for myself, Asa Gregg said harshly. I might point out that you were always in Florida, or Bermuda, or France, and that I was a lonely man. But it wasn't just loneliness, and I didn't seek companionship. I thought I was making a last bow to romance. I was successful, sixty, and silly, and I did all the damn fool things. I even wrote letters to her. Popsy-wopsy letters. The dictaphone couldn't record the grimace that jerked his lips. She saved them, of course, and by and by she put a price on them. Ten thousand dollars. Dot claimed that one of those filthy tabloids had offered her that much for them, and what was a poor working girl to do? She lied. I knew that. I told her to bring the letters to the office after business hours, and I'd take care of her. I took care of her, all right. I shot her, Jeanette. He mopped his face with a handkerchief that was already damp. Not on account of the money, you understand. It was the thing she said after she had tucked the bills into her purse. Vile things, about the way she had earned it ten times over by enduring my beastly kisses. I really love that girl, 
and I'd thought she'd cared for me a little. It was her hate that maddened me, and I got a gun out of my desk drawer. Asa Gregg reached through the darkness for the switch. He fumbled for the bottle which stood on the desk. His hands trembled, spilling some of the liquor onto his lap. He drank from the bottle. This part of the story he'd skip. It was too horrible even to think about. He didn't want to remember how the blood pooled inside Dot's fur coat, and how he'd managed to carry the body out of the office without leaking any of her blood onto the floor. He tried to forget the musky sweetness of the perfume on the dead girl, mingled with the other evil blood smell. Especially he didn't want to remember the frightful time he'd had stripping the gold rings from her fingers and the one gold tooth in her head. The horror of it coiled in the blackness about him. His own teeth rattled against the bottle when he gulped the second drink. He snapped the switch savagely, but when he spoke, his voice cringed into the tube. I carried her into the storage room. I got the lid off one of the acid tanks. The vat contained an acid powerful enough to destroy anything except gold. In fact, the vat itself had to be lined with gold leaf. I knew that in 24 hours, there wouldn't be a recognizable body left. And in a week, there wouldn't be anything at all. No matter what the police suspected, they couldn't prove a murder charge without a corpus delecti. I had committed the perfect crime, except for one thing. I didn't realize there'd be a splash when she went into the vat. Greg laughed, not pleasantly. His wife might think it had been a sob when she heard this record. Now you understand why I went to the hospital, he jerked. Possibly you'd call that poetic justice. Oh, God. His voice broke again. He thumbed off the switch and mopped his face with the damp linen. The rest. How could he explain the rest of it? He spent a long minute arranging his thoughts. You haven't any idea, he resumed. No one has any idea of how I have been punished for the thing I did. I don't mean the sheer physical agony, but the fear that I'd talk coming out of the ether at the hospital. The fear that she'd been traced to my office. I'd simply hidden her rings away, expecting to drop them into the river. Or that she might have confided in her lover. Yes, she had one. Or, suppose a whopping big order came through and the tank was emptied the very next day. And I couldn't ask any questions. I didn't even know what was in the papers. However, that part of it was gradually cleared up. I quizzed Miss Carruthers and learned that an unidentified female body had been fished out of the East River a few days after Dot disappeared. That's how the police solved the crime. I got rid of her rings. I ordered the vat left alone. The other thing began about six months ago. A spasm contorted his face. His fingers ached their grip into the dictaphone tube. Jeanette, you remember how I began to object to the radio? How I'd shout at you to turn it off in the middle of the program? You thought I was ill and worried about business. You were wrong. The thing that got me was hearing her voice. He gripped the cold cigar, chewed it. It's very strange that you didn't notice it. No matter what station we dialed to, 
Always the same voice came stealing into the room. But perhaps you did notice. You said once or twice that all those blues singers sound alike. And she was a blues singer. It was she, all right, somewhere out there in the ether, reminding me. The next thing was, well, at first, when I noticed it in the office, I thought Miss Carruthers had suddenly taken up with young ideas. You see, I kept smelling perfume. And he smelled it now. It was like a miasma in the dark. It isn't anything that Carruthers wears, he grated. It comes from, yes, the storage room. I realized that about a month ago, just after you sailed. One night I stayed late at the office, and I went in there. It seemed to be strongest around the vat, her vat. And I lifted the lid. The sweet, sticky, musty smell hit me like a blow in the face. And that isn't all. Terror stalked in this room. Asa Gregg crouched in his chair, felt the weight of fear on him, like a submarine pressure. His cigar pitched on his knees, dropped to the floor. You wouldn't believe this, Jeanette. He hammered the words like nails into the darkness in front of him. You will say that it's impossible. I know that. It is impossible. And it is physiologically absurd. It contradicts the laws of natural science. But I saw something on the bottom of that vat. He groped for the bottle. His wife would hear a low gurgle and then a coughing gasp. The vat was nearly full of this transparent, oily acid, he went on. What I saw was a lot of sediment on the golden floor. And there shouldn't have been any sediment. The stuff utterly dissolves animal tissue, bone, even the common ores. Keeps them in suspension. It didn't look like sediment either. It looked like a heap of mold. Grave mold. I replaced the lid. I spent a week convincing myself that it was all impossible. That I couldn't have seen anything of the sort. Then I went to the vat again. Silence hung in the darkness while he sucked air into his lungs. And the words burst. Separate, yammering shrieks. I looked, night after night, for hours at a time, I watched the change. Did you ever see a body decompose? Of course not. Neither have I. But you must know in a general way what the process is. Well, this has been the exact opposite. First, I stared at the heap of grave mold as it shaped itself into bones, a skeleton. I watched the coming of hair, a yellow tangle of it sprouting from the bare, round skull, until, oh, God, the flesh began to make itself before my eyes. I couldn't bear any more. I stayed away, didn't come to the office for five days. The tube slipped from his sweating, slick fingers. Panting, Asa Gregg fumbled in the dark until he found it. Exhaustion, not self-control, flattened his voice to a dead monotone. I tried to think of a way out. If I could fish the corpse out of the tank, but I couldn't smuggle it out of the plant alone. You know that, and so do I. Besides, what would be the use? If the acid can't kill her, nothing can. That's why I can't have the lid cemented on. It wouldn't do any good either. Until three days ago, she hadn't the least color, 
looking as white as a ghost in the vat. A naked ghost, because there's been no resurrection for her clothing. I've watched her limbs grow rosy. Her lips are scarlet. Her eyes are bright. They opened yesterday. And her breasts were rising and falling. Oh, almost imperceptibly. But that was last night. And tonight, I swear it, her lips moved. She muttered my name. She turned. She'd been lying on her side, over onto her back. The record would be badly blurred. His hand shook violently, bobbling the tube against his lips. Greg braced his elbow against the desk. She isn't dead, he choked. She's only asleep, not very soundly asleep. She's waking up. The invisible needle quivered as it traced several noises. There was his tortured breathing, and the clawing of his fingernails rattling over the desk. The drawer clicked as it opened. A loud click was the cocking of the revolver. Soon she's going to get out of that vat, Greg bleated. Jeanette, forgive me. God, forgive me. For I will not, I cannot, I dare not stay here and see her then. The sound of the shot brought the watchman stumbling along the corridor. He crashed against the office door. It banged open in a shower of falling, frosted glass. The watchman's flashlight severed the darkness and printed its white circle on the face of Asa Gregg. He had fallen back into the chair, a blackish gout of blood running from the hole in his temple. He stared sightlessly into the light, with his eyes that were two gnarls of shrunken brown flesh, like knots in a pine board. Asa Gregg was blind, had been since that night three years past, when the acid splashed. The End of In the Dark by Ronald Kayser Thank you once again for listening to People's Guide to the Cthulhu Mythos. You can help show your support by going to the show notes and following any of the links that'll tell you how to support the show, how to support our guests, and thank you to all of our guests who you can find in the show notes. Rate, review, subscribe, and remember, patrons get priority access to asking us questions, suggesting topics, even, I don't know, uh, submitting stuff. Actually, you don't have to be a patron to submit anything. That's how Dave got on the show, and that's how you can get on the show, too. It's the People's Guide to the Cthulhu Mythos. Rate, review, subscribe, tell your friends. Thank you for listening. Back to the show. Recording by Louise J. Bell The Last of Mrs. DeBrew by H. Sivia let he, Mr. DeBrew remarked between long puffs on his meerschaum, you've been a fine maid. You've served Mrs. DeBrew and me for most of fifteen years. Now I haven't much more time in this life, and I want you to know that after Mrs. DeBrew and I are gone, you will be well taken care of. Letty stopped her dusting of the chairs in Mr. DeBrew's oak-paneled study 
She sighed and turned toward the man, who sat on a heavy sofa, puffing on his pipe and gazing across the room into nothingness. You mustn't talk that way, Mr. Debrew, she said. You know you're a long time from the dark ways yet. She paused and then went on dusting and talking again. And me? <laughs> I've only done what any ordinary human would do for such a kind employer as you, sir. Especially after all you've done for me. He didn't say anything, and she went on with her work. Of course, she liked to work for him. She had adored the kindly old man since first she had met him in an agency fifteen years before. A person couldn't ask for a better master. But there was the mistress, Mrs. Debrew. It was she who gave Letty cause for worry. What with her nagging tongue and her sharp rebukes, it was a wonder Letty had not quit long before. She would have quit, too, but there had been the terrible sickness she had undergone and conquered with the aid of the ablest physicians Mr. Debrew could engage. She couldn't quit after that, no matter what misery Mrs. Debrew heaped on her. And so she went about her work at all hours, never tiring, always striving to please. She left the study, closing the great door silently behind her, for old Mr. Debrew had sunk deeper into the sofa, into the realms of peaceful sleep, and she did not wish to disturb him. Letty! came the shrill cry of Mrs. Debrew from down the hall. Get these pictures and take them to the attic at once and tell Mr. Debrew to come here. Letty went for the pictures. Mr. Debrew is asleep, she said, explaining why she was not obeying the last command. Well, I'll soon fix that, lazy old man. Sleeps all day with that smelly pipe between his teeth. If he had an ounce of pep about him, he'd get out and work the flowers. Sleeps too much anyway. Not good for him. She stamped out of the room and down the hall, and Letty heard her open the door of the study and scream at her husband. Hector de Brew, wake up! There was a silence, during which Letty wondered what was going on. Then she heard the noisy clop-clop of Mrs. de Brew's slippers on the hardwood floor of the study, and she knew the woman was going to shake the daylights out of Mr. de Brew and frighten him into wakefulness. She could even imagine she heard Mrs. Debrew grasp the lapels of her husband's coat and shake him back and forth against the chair. 
Then she heard the scream. It came quite abruptly from Mrs. DeBrew in the study, and it frightened Letty out of her wits momentarily. After that, there was the thud of a falling body and the clatter of an upset piece of furniture. Letty hurried out of the room into the hall and through the open door of the study. She saw Mrs. DeBrew slumped on the floor in a faint, and beside her an upset ashtray. But her eyes did not linger on the woman, nor the tray. Instead, they focused on the still form of Mr. DeBrew in the sofa. He was slumped down, his head twisted to one side, and his mouth hanging open from the shaking Mrs. DeBrew had given him. The meerschaum had slipped from between his teeth, and the cold ashes were scattered on his trousers. Even then, before the sea of tears began to flow from her eyes, Letty knew the old man was dead. She knew what he had meant by the speech he had said to her only a few minutes before. His heart was the comment of the doctor, who arrived a short time later and pronounced the old man dead. He had to go. Today. Tomorrow. Soon. After that, he put Mrs. DeBrew to bed and turned to Letty. Mrs. DeBrew is merely suffering from a slight shock. There is nothing more that I can do. When she awakens, see that she stays in bed for the rest of the day. He left then, and Letty felt a strange coldness about the place something that had not been there while Mr. DeBrew was alive. She went downstairs and made several telephone calls, which she knew would be necessary. Later, when Mrs. DeBrew was feeling better, other arrangements could be made. She straightened the furniture in the study, pushing the familiar sofa back in place, from where Mr. DeBrew invariably moved it. Then she knocked the ashes from the meerschaum, wiped it off, and placed it carefully in the little glass cabinet on the wall where he always kept it. Times would be different now, she knew. She remembered what he had said. You will be well taken care of. But there had been something else. After Mrs. DeBrew and I are gone, Letty could no longer hold back the tears. She fell into a chair and they poured forth. But time always passes, and with it goes a healing balm for most all sorrows.
First, there was the funeral. Then came other arrangements. And there was the will, which Mrs. DeBrew never mentioned. His things would have fallen into decay but for the hands of Letty. Always her dust cloth made his study immaculate. Always the sofa was in place, and the pipe, clean and shining, in the cabinet. There was a different hardness about Mrs. DeBrew. No longer was she content with driving Letty like a slave day in and day out. She became even more unbearable. There were little things, like taking away her privilege of having Saturday afternoons off, and the occasional forgetting of Letty's weekly pay. Once, Letty thought of leaving during the night, of packing her few clothes and going forever from the house. But that was foolish. There was no place to go, and she was getting too old for maid service. Besides, hadn't Mr. DeBrew said she would be taken care of? After Mrs. DeBrew and I are gone, perhaps she would not live much longer. And then one morning... Mrs. DeBrew called Letty in to talk with her. It was the hour Letty had been awaiting and dreading. There was a harsh, gloating tone in Mrs. DeBrew's voice as she spoke. She was the master now. There was no Hector to think of. Letty, she said, for some time now I have been considering closing the house. I'm lonely here. I intend to go to the city and live with my sister. So you see, I shan't be needing you any longer. I'll be leaving within the next two days. I'm sorry. Letty was speechless. She had expected something terrible, but not this. This wasn't so. Mrs. DeBrew was lying. It was the will she was afraid of. Letty remembered Mr. DeBrew's promise. She did not complain, however. Her only words were, I'll leave tomorrow. That night, she packed her things. She had no definite plans, but she hoped something would turn up. Sleep would not come easy, so Letty lay in bed and thought of old Mr. DeBrew. She imagined he was before her in the room, reclining on the sofa puffing long on the meerschaum.
she even saw in fancy the curling wisps of gray smoke drifting upward, upward. It was sleep. Then, with a start, she was suddenly wide awake. She had surely heard a scream. But no. And then, as soft and as silent as the night wind, came the whisper, Letty. It drifted slowly off into silence, and a cool breeze crossed her brow. She suddenly felt wet with perspiration. She listened closely, but the whisper was not repeated. Then, noiselessly, she got out of bed, stepped into slippers, and drew a robe about her. Just as silently, she left her room and walked down the hall to Mrs. DeBrew's bedroom. She rapped softly on the door, fearing the wrath of the woman within at being awakened in the middle of the night. There was no answer. No sound from inside the room. Letty hesitated, wondering what to do. And once more, she felt that cool, death-like breeze and heard the faintest of whispers, fainter even than the sighing of the night wind. Letty. She opened the door and switched on the light. Mrs. DeBrew lay in the bed as in sleep, but Letty knew, as she had known about Mr. DeBrew, that it was more than sleep. She quickly called the doctor, and sometime much later he arrived his eyes heavy from lack of sleep. Dead, he remarked after looking at the body. Probably had a shock. Fright. Nightmare. Or something her heart couldn't stand. I always thought she would have died first. Letty walked slowly from the room down the stairs, still in her robe and slippers. The doctor followed and passed her, going through the door into the outside. She walked, as though directed by some unseen force, into Mr. DeBrew's study. She switched on a lamp beside the sofa on which he had always sat, and she noticed that it was moved, slightly out of place. There was something else about the room, some memory of old days. First, 
she saw some sort of legal document on the table and wondered at its being there. The title said, Last Will and Testament of Hector A. Debreu. It was brief. She read it through and found that Mr. Debreu had spoken truthfully in his promise to her. Beside the will on the table was another object, and she knew then what the something else in the room was. The Meerschaum. It lay there beside the document, and a thin spiral of grayish smoke rose upward from it toward the ceiling. No longer did Letty wonder about anything. End of The Last of Mrs. DeBrew Recording by Louise J. Bell Sebastopol, California Hey everyone, it's me, TV. Just reminding you, we have t-shirts in the show. Just go to pgttcm.com Check out all of our cool t-shirts and stickers. Heck, we've got some show birds in there.